Well, good morning. My name is Luke Snare. I'm our Community Engagement Coordinator here at First Baptist. And basically what that means is I'm here to walk alongside all of you as we figure out how to share the good news of Jesus with our friends, neighbors, coworkers, and the city of Arlington. Um, good morning, Evelyn. <laughs> I'm happy to have my family here this morning. Um, and it's truly an honor to be asked to preach. I'm really honored to be here, and I was excited uh, to be asked to preach on Ecclesiastes, which is a book that I enjoy, um, but I know that not everyone has loved Ecclesiastes. So if you're here, for the first time, we're wrapping up a summer series on Ecclesiastes. We started back in June with Dr. Wiles. It's part of our Recreate series. And Dr. Wiles likened reading Ecclesiastes to riding around on Koholet, or the teacher's tour bus as he points out to us this vapid, fleeting nature of life. Well, today, we are getting off the tour bus, and some of you have probably been, never been more relieved to finish up a sermon series. We are going to arrive at the end of the matter today, and we're going to get some much-needed clarity regarding this book. So we'll be in the last two verses of Ecclesiastes today, that's Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, and rather than hearing more from Koholet, we are going to get an afterword from the author or scribe who likely wrote down Koholet's teachings. And he's going to give us a helpful summary of the book. So ultimately, Ecclesiastes is about wise living. It's part of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Um, but Ecclesiastes' message is a little bit different. It recognizes that wisdom has limits. And it forms kind of a harmony with books like Proverbs, which tend to have a more straightforward approach to wisdom. Proverbs can act like wisdom is methodical, and its sayings often say, if you do X, then you'll get Y. And Proverbs teaches us these formulas for wise living to achieve the positive ends that wise living produces. And most of the time, these Proverbs hold true. And if you follow their wisdom, you'll get their results. Proverbs aren't promises by any means, but they are instead guidelines for good living in a world that generally makes sense. So let's test this out by examining one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 27, 14. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. <laughs> the Bible said it first, guys. My dad, who's here with us this morning, was my youth pastor, and my youth pastor father had a way of waking everyone up on mission trips, and he would bless us very loudly in the morning with his best rendition of rise, shine, and give God the glory. I promise you, it was taken as a curse. <laughs> and I don't recall my dad ever teaching this verse in a youth group lesson, and I don't know if that was intentional or not. But this is how Proverbs work. They operate on a cause and effect basis. Cause, loud blessing early in the morning. Effect, angry neighbor. And this is a good principle that teaches us how to make the most out of God's ordered universe. And it's easy to see if it's generally true. If you shout, God loves you to your neighbor at 5 a.m., you will receive menacing glares at best. So this is like the biblical equivalent of a don't talk to me until I've had coffee sign. And most of Proverbs follows this structure. If you do these things, if you follow this wisdom, 
then your paths will be straight. And to paraphrase, paraphrase Proverbs 3.1, if you keep the teachings of Proverbs, you will live long and prosper. And generally, this is true. We learn how to lead a good and full life in Proverbs, and we would be well served to follow their wisdom. And we like this. This sounds great. Here's a roadmap for wise living, to live a prosperous, happy, full life. But then we get to Ecclesiastes, and Koholet says, yeah, that's great, but Koholet and Ecclesiastes exist to remind us that life is not always cause and effect. Sometimes it's hazy and nebulous. You can do everything right, and bad things will still happen to you. You can work hard and diligently and still come up short. You can have a prosperous life and still be dissatisfied. You could follow every proverb perfectly and you might get an unexpected result. Life may not be the straightforward path that you expected. At my first church, we had a woman, uh, this was at a church in Massachusetts, who had been researching seaweed at the Smithsonian Institute at one point in her career. She was brilliant, a doctor, well-read, and more, but by the time I knew her, she was living in her car. And I'll never forget the day that she looked me in the eye and told me, life is circuitous. It was a very her thing to say. It was also a very Koholet thing to say. And by that, she meant that life doesn't always follow the most direct path, and it isn't always straightforward. Ecclesiastes wants to remind us that though God created the world in an orderly way, sin brought chaos and death, and the formulas of wisdom don't always yield the result that we hoped for, because this world is fallen. We don't always get to take the direct or success-filled path through life, and Ecclesiastes wants to show us how to navigate that. Now, the word that we translate from Hebrew as wisdom is closely related to the words for artistic or artisanal skill. So wisdom in the Bible is the art of living skillfully in God's ordered universe. It's why we learn how to do it well when it's predictable and unpredictable. It's why we have both Ecclesiastes and Proverbs in our Bible. Ecclesiastes directs us as we search for how to navigate the exceptions to the rule or how we live wisely when wisdom doesn't work. Old Testament scholar Elaine Goh says, Koholet surveys the physical, toil and death, economic, or labor and gain, and sociopolitical, injustice and the supreme power of rulers as well. The world does not operate according to our ideal expectations. These are the exceptions that occur in the life of God's people who are saved by God's grace yet are marked by fallen human nature. So here at the end of the matter, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to help us answer the question that Koholet left us with. How do we live well when the world does not operate according to our ideal expectations? If everything is meaningless, fleeting, vain, or foggy, what are we to do? So here we get to Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Again, it's likely that what we're reading in these two verses is not Koholet's voice, but is the voice of the author who collected Koholet's thoughts. And these form kind of an afterword or summary of the entire book. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. 
For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So this is the conclusive final word, the summary of everything that's come before in the book. And in it, we learn what it truly means to be human. So if you've been curious what the point of Ecclesiastes is, this is it. The author of this book has given us the way forward into wisely embracing and living into our full humanity in light of who God is in this world. We live into the fullness of our human nature when we fear God and keep God's commandments. So many translations will phrase this verse as fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. But those translations are an attempt to smooth over an idiom in the Hebrew that we're not fully sure how to phrase into English. So the word duty isn't present in the text in Hebrew and it most literally reads, if you were to just translate word for word, because this all the human. Not a smooth phrase in English. Um, and so translators have had to work on putting that into a way that makes sense. One of the ways they do that is saying that fearing God and keeping his commandments is our duty. But another way that translators will phrase this is to say that this is what it means to be fully human. So since being fully human is a pretty important concept, I think we should camp out here for a minute and discern together how we live into our full humanity. And we start by fearing God. Now, fearing God is a really interesting phrase, and it's a consistent phrase throughout the Old Testament, but it's not a common part of our regular speech habit. I mean, you don't exactly ask someone in church, did you fear God today? Um, it's not even really a normal phrase in the New Testament. Fearing God is not the same thing as the panic response that you feel in your body when you see a snake or step up to a ledge. It's not necessarily being afraid feeling anxious, or even an emotional response. The fear of God is a clear sense of perspective of the proportionality between God and yourself. Or phrased differently, it's recognizing the difference in scope between yourself and God. So to illustrate this point, my family and I used to live on Cape Cod up in Massachusetts on the Northern Atlantic. And if you're not familiar with the geography of that part of the country, which I was not before I moved there, Cape Cod is essentially a 65-mile-long sandbar that sticks out into the northern Atlantic, and at its widest point is 20 miles wide. It's not big. We lived on that sandbar through nor'easters, which I also didn't know about before I moved to New England, which those are basically just hurricanes with snow. Super fun. Um, gotta love New England weather. And we have walked on the beach in the wake of a nor'easter with snow on the sand on those steely cold days after a storm. And while I don't know that I am afraid of the ocean, I do fear it. I recognize my insignificance in comparison to the size and strength of the Atlantic. I know that the ocean could end my life easily and that I have to live by its rules. I am small in comparison to the Atlantic Ocean. Now before I feared the ocean, I did not live in a real awareness of its power. So one nor'easter, I wanted to see the ocean raging, and so we drove our car, and I got out, and I, but I could barely open my eyes because of how fast the wind was blowing, and I was being pelted with sand. And the next day, the part of the shore where I had been standing fell into the ocean when our town lost 30 feet of beach that day. I fear the ocean now. 
my awareness of its power and scope causes me to live differently than I did before. I'm not going to get out in a nor'easter and stand on the beach. I know that I have to live according to the ocean's reality when I'm on the ocean. And this is what it looks like to fear God. We don't have to be afraid of God, but we do need a sense of reverence towards God. We need to be aware of the proportionality between ourselves and God, and we respond appropriately. And this is what it means to fear God. And because of Jesus, we fear God even more, or revere God even more, because we know that the God who created everything effortlessly and who knows the arc of human history and all of our problems chose to suffer with us and for us. And though we are small in light of God's infinitude, we are not inconsequential. What we do matters. God sees us and what we do as worthy of attention. So another way to think about what it means to fear God comes from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. And one of the young characters who has stepped into this magical land under, under the rule of an evil witch hears about Aslan, who has the power to stop evil and put everything right again. And regarding Aslan, who is a Christ figure in the story, if you haven't read it, she asks, is he safe? And her new friend, newfound friend, Mr. Beaver, who, if you haven't read the books, is actually a beaver, answers, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. God isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Fearing God means we live in an awareness of God's grandeur, and then we live in accordance with that highest reality. And we cultivate this fear by reinforcing a vision that recognizes we live in a world where God is the good judge who will ultimately unveil everything good and bad and deal with it accordingly. The truly appropriate response to fearing God is to live according to God's reality. And this is what guides us into wise living for Ecclesiastes. When we fear God, we keep his commandments. Now, the Old Testament is full of God's commandments, and the author of Ecclesiastes was calling the readers or listeners to obey the law that God had given his people, which is known as the Torah. And thankfully, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, provides a succinct summary of those Torah teachings in Mark 12, 30 through 31, where he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. A fear of God leads us to love God because we recognize the scope of God's goodness and we love God with everything that we are. Jesus also commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we can get those two things right, we will have kept God's commandments. And if you fear God and keep God's commandments, then you will be living as you were designed to live. And you will be living into the fullest expression of what it means to be human. And this is artfully skilled, wise living at its core. Life in harmony with God's universe and in accordance with God's reality. And the author of Ecclesiastes has arrived at this conclusion not by just skating through life or looking at everything through rose-colored glasses, but has gained this wisdom by experiencing doubt and crisis. Elaine Goh says, tracing wisdom from Proverbs through Job and eventually to Ecclesiastes, 
a believer in God embraces Torah obedience while growing in faith. Such obedience demands serious engagement with the harsh realities of life, such as the suffering of the righteous, toil and death, and the ultimate presence or absence of God. A believer in God grows from a simple faith to a faith in crisis and then a renewed faith. We all experience God's goodness, but there's something different and deeper about our faith in God after we've moved through crisis and experienced the darker parts of life. When we've made that progression in our faith, we have followed along in Koholet's footsteps and find that our faith, while it may feel different, is renewed. We press forward in that renewed vision of who God is and what God's goodness is in the midst of life's harsh realities, and we keep God's commandments even when it doesn't feel like they matter. But the author doesn't end there. The author wants to remind us that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Sometimes wicked and foolish people succeed. Sometimes they inflict their wickedness and foolishness on others, and the author is aware of that reality. Elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, we've heard the refrain, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That word can be translated as fog, vapor, or haze from Hebrew. And here at the end, the author is taking a minute to clear away the fog and reminds us that not everything is meaningless. God sees through the fogginess of life and will bring justice. God's reality is greater than we can comprehend. And depending on who you are and how you're living, this is either a comfort or a warning. If you're not fearing God, if you're not keeping God's commandments, you've been warned. God will expose every hidden thing. Every act that you've done in private will be dealt with. And if you've lived against God's wisdom and against God's commandments and have gotten away with it in this life, God sees. God will deal with it accordingly. And if you're someone who's been the victim of injustice or the wickedness of another, you can receive comfort in knowing that God will take care of that. You will receive justice. And you can also be comforted in knowing that God sees every good thing you've done in private. He will judge it accordingly too. <clears throat> the good things that you've done in secret for the kingdom will be revealed, and God will judge those things as good. God sees through the fogginess of this life. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, 3, where he says, But when you give to the needy, don't, do not let your left hands know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. God knows the good that you've done, and God will unveil that too. So at the end of the matter, we learn that the key to wise living is to fear God, even when life isn't straightforward, and to live in accordance with God's commandments by following those. Things in this life may be shrouded in fogginess or seeming meaninglessness, but we know that God will ultimately clear that away. And the author wants us to show us how to live well when life doesn't make sense or when typical wisdom hasn't worked out. And the answer to that is faithful living. I mentioned earlier that the word that we translate as wisdom is related to artistic or artisanal skill. And this is probably not shocking given my haircut, but I took a few art classes in college. <laughs> it's a thing. 
I learned in those art classes the elements and principles of art or design, and you may be shocked to know that art has principles, uh, but those are things like balance, which is how you create a sense of symmetry or asymmetry in a work, um, or movement and how you can convey a sense of motion in art and painting by how you utilize brush strokes and things like that. Every single work of art you've ever seen utilizes the principles and elements of art, but they're all using them differently. So Raphael's School of Athens, which I know you've seen before, has utilized these principles and elements to create a structured and orderly painting with a clear sense of symmetry and perspective. Monet used careful brush strokes and vivid color to create a sense of movement and texture in water lilies. And Wassily Kandinsky used color and dynamic shapes to ex abstractly express biblical themes of resurrection, judgment, and more in Composition 7. If you can see that, good for you. <laughs> These are all great works of art. They're all using the same principles and elements, but none of them look remotely alike. Now, I want you to imagine your life as a work of art that you are in the process of creating. You may not have the same color palette or set of tools as your neighbor, but if you are artfully, skillfully living in God's universe, then you will be using the same guiding principles and elements of wisdom. You will be fearing God and keeping his commandments, and in doing so, your life will become a masterpiece, even though it may look as different from someone's as a Raphael is from a Kandinsky. Your role in living your life and skillfully creating the masterpiece of your life is to practice wise living as best you can and know that God sees your life for exactly what it is. If you fear God and keep his commandments, your life will be skillfully and beautifully lived, regardless of the circumstances. And beyond the pursuit of wise living, with which we can only do what we're able to do, we know that beyond God's judgment is God's grace. When our lives, which may have been orderly and straightforward, or confusing and messy, end, and they will, then we will meet God, and everything we've done will be unveiled. For those of us who are in Christ, we know that God's grace is there for us even beyond God's judgment. Ecclesiastes has been quite a journey for us. Everything under the sun may be meaningless, meaningless, but here at the end of the matter, Ecclesiastes shows us that a life lived in the pursuit of God and keeping his commandments can indeed be meaningful, meaningful. And thank goodness that there is one wiser than Solomon who points out that meaningful way to us. This meaningful life of fearing God and keeping God's commandments is the kind of life that Jesus teaches us about in John 15, 9 through 14 and 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. This is my command, love each other. Jesus turns Ecclesiastes' encouragement to live a life in pursuit of God into a promise. If you fear God and keep his commands, 
then you will remain in God's love. And this will give you complete joy, even when life under the sun seems meaningless. And if you keep God's commands, you won't just be God's servant, but you will be God's friend. And being God's friend means a life rooted in and sustained by God's love and joy, even when the circumstances of life don't seem conducive to joy. When Jesus promised his disciples that his joy would be in them, he was not promising them a life free from struggle or disappointment or toil, but he was promising them a life infused with God's sustaining, loving presence that has the ability to see beyond the meaninglessness of this life into the meaningful nature of the kingdom of God. Keeping God's commandments, which boils down to a supreme act of love, means a life where our work which is infused with God's love, is never empty toil. Our efforts are never wasted. In a life oriented towards God and keeping God's commandments, we can joyfully say, meaningful, meaningful. Everything is meaningful. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together this morning. And as we move out into our daily lives, we ask that you guide us into faithful living where we are people who keep your commandments and love each other well. We ask that you infuse our lives with your love and your sustaining presence. In your name we pray. Amen.